Our reading is from Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 33, on page 1013 of the Church Bible. Mark chapter 9, verse 33, page 1013. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be the first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. And this evening we're going to be thinking about this issue of pride, the next uh, battle that Christians face. Muhammad Ali famously said, I am the greatest. Uh, whether or not he was, it's um, either supremely confident or incredibly arrogant to claim it, isn't it? I am the greatest. And I think if we look out at our world, we're, we're not short of people trying to prove or show their greatness. From the constant self-promotion of presidents, I'll leave you to guess who, to uh, pictures of um, bikini-clad celebrities on Instagram. We live in a world full of people saying, look at me, look at what marks me out from the crowd, see how good I am. Our culture's a weird one though, isn't it? Because we, we elevate people up to greatness, and yet at the same time we can't bear the idea that some people are perceived to be of more value or higher status, or popularity than the, the rest of us, because it exposes our, our ordinariness. And so we ridicule, we mock, we malign, and in doing so we feel so much better about ourselves. We, we love a good fallen celebrity story, don't we? Particularly if you're hello readers, we love that. Uh, in our own little worlds, and our own little ways, I think we all strive for greatness, don't we? Like we want to be great. And lying behind that striving is, I think, one thing that is common to us all, and that's pride. Pride. Vaughan Roberts, in his book, Battles Christians Face, describes pride as this, or defines it as, essentially, an overinflated ego. The attitude that places me at the centre of everything. 
Perhaps we know that person. That person who only ever talks about themselves, about their lives, who constantly draws attention to themselves. But there is a bit of that in all of us. We can take pride in in all sorts of things, can't we? Either inwardly or outwardly. Our education, our friendships, our our family, our job, the the area we, we live in, the stuff we own, our success and achievements. These are all things that we can use to give ourselves value, prestige, reputation, recognition. Things that mark us out from others. As C.S. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Now, if thinking, I am the greatest, is at one end of the scale, then perhaps thinking, I am the worst, is the other end of the scale. But the thing is, both are manifestations of pride. Both. Attitudes place ourselves and ego at the centre and derive our values from how we perceive ourselves compared to other people. Madonna recognises that when she says this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. In every human being, pride seems to lead to this insatiable desire to satisfy our fragile ego. But nothing seems to ever be able to do it. And in our passage this evening, we're going to see, I think, that the antidote to pride is to understand what true greatness really is. You see, the disciples weren't content to be Jesus' closest friends and followers. They, they wanted to know who among, them, who among them was the greatest. You can imagine them walking uh, along the road, can't you, just a, a bit behind Jesus discussing among themselves who had the greatest claim, the greatest case for being the greatest. The sort of verbal, sparring, disciple, top trump sort of conversation. It seems, doesn't it, that you can be incredibly close to Jesus and use even that closeness as fuel of ego, fuel to build your pride. You can imagine their embarrassment, can't you? Look down at verse... Uh, 33. You can imagine the embarrassment when they arrive in Capernaum and, and Jesus asked them what they were discussing on the way there. And wonder, verse 34, they keep quiet. Suddenly when you're talking with Jesus, any claims to greatness seem, well, seem a little bit ridiculous, don't they? And so, verse 35, Jesus sits down. 
Jesus often taught the disciples informally as he was walking around, uh, but now he sits down. When Jesus sits down in the Gospels, this is the moment where he's going to teach. Jesus is taking the disciples' claim, desire for greatness, very, very seriously. And he's taking it seriously because pride is a serious thing. It was the sin that led Adam and Eve to reject God. And it's been the sin of all humanity since. It's serious because it's at the roots and centre of every other sin we do. Pride rejects God and his rule and places self at the centre. We become gods. That's pride. And so Jesus sits down, sits them down and begins to teach. Verse 35. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant of all. Jesus teaches firstly this true greatness is humble, sacrificial service. The disciples' desire for greatness is perhaps even more shocking when you realise what Jesus has just been talking about. Look at uh, verse 31 of chapter 9. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. Jesus just said, look, I'm not going to be with you. I'm actually, I'm going to die. And yet, off the back of that, the disciples are talking about greatness. I mean, in fairness to them, verse uh, 32, they didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about and they were afraid to ask. But this was Jesus' mission, wasn't it, to come and die? And we read this great statement in Mark 10, Verse 45, just flick over the page of why Jesus would do that. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus models true greatness, humble, sacrificial service. What's interesting about this passage, I don't know if you noticed it, was that Jesus doesn't rebuke, he doesn't tell the disciples off for desiring to be great. But what he does do is show them they are are desiring the completely wrong type of greatness. Because previously to this, Jesus called his followers to do this, to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow me. That's true, humble, sacrificial service, to lay down your life for Christ and for others. The first must be the very last, the servant of all. Now this, this, this verse, this passage is a great verse to quote when you're queuing for your tea at a congregational supper, isn't it? It's a great one to quote. But Jesus isn't really talking about where he stands in a dinner queue. Jesus is talking about doing the stuff that you think is below you. The stuff that you don't think you should do, but that others should do, in order that others might be served. Jesus is talking about laying down your rights in order that others might prosper. 
Can you imagine what it would like to be part of a church family that did that fully? Wonderfully, we think we see that, that partially here. Can you imagine if we all did that, what a family that would be? And true greatness is, is sacrificial service, but it's humble, isn't it? I wonder if someone said to you, um, asked the question, what would you like to be remembered for? When your days on this world are no more, what would you like to be talked about for? Or, or perhaps now, what would you like to be known for? What do you want people to notice about you? The fact you're funny, godly, faithful, kind, generous, caring, bright, successful, sacrificial. Oh, it'd be great to be all those things and more, wouldn't it? The problem is our pride doesn't just want to be those things. Our pride wants to be known as those things. And there's a difference. See, truly humble, sacrificial service doesn't want to be known at all. True greatness just gets on with humbly serving. Tim Keller said this, he said, A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person, I'm the worst, or a self-loving person, I'm the greatest. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. See, true greatness serves as though serving an audience of one, God himself. Secondly then, Jesus teaches here that true greatness welcomes others as we have been welcomed. That's verses 36 to verses 37. And what Jesus does here is he builds on and illustrates his teaching to the disciples by showing them practically what this is going to look like. Just look at verse 36. Try and imagine the scene. The disciples are they're sat around. And verse 36, Jesus, verse 36, Jesus invites this small child to come and stand amongst them. That could be a pretty intimidating and overwhelming experience for a small child, particularly in the culture back then where children had very few rights and they had very little protection like young people of today have. But that wasn't this child's experience, was it? What does Jesus do? Taking him in his arms, he said to them, See, Jesus draws this little lad close to him. A place of security, a place of love, a place of protection. And what Jesus does here is an illustration, if you like, for what the disciples are to do for all little people. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. What Jesus does here is he, he links welcoming little children or little people together with welcoming him. Jesus' ministry had, it, it already focused around, always focused around little people, hadn't it? The marginalised, the sick, the outsider, the unclean. The little people of society, the people that no one else cared about, the people who had no value, well, Jesus was for them. 
And he comes for them because he says in Mark 2.17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus welcomes little people. He, he welcomes little people who recognize their needs of him. And in fact, Jesus is going to go on and say that in chapter 10 that it is only, it is only if you are like a little child that you can enter the kingdom of God with a humble dependence and a childlike, simple faith. Jesus came to be with and to die for and to serve little people. And the mistake that the disciples have made here is they've forgotten that primarily before God, they too are little people. They've, like all of us so easily do, believed their own publicity. They think that somehow now, because they're in Jesus 12, they're the, the chosen ones, the great ones, the big ones. And so Jesus tells them here to welcome little people. And he does that because in order to be stirred to do that, they will need to recognize that they too are little people welcomed by Jesus. One won't happen without the other. And look else, look at the second half of verse 37. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. You see the chain here. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, welcomes Jesus. Whoever welcomes Jesus welcomes his father. I want you to um, imagine this scenario. Okay, tomorrow you, you, the doorbell rings at about 9 o'clock, 9 p.m. And you open the door and there's a stranger on your door. And they say, oh, look, I'm just staying in Basingstoke. I'm pretty desperate. Would you mind if I come and stay with you for the night? Never met them before. Now, I imagine that most of us would go, I'm really sorry, but I'm, I can't do that. Here's, you might even say, here's some money for a hotel, but you, you, you're not going to let them in. But imagine that same scenario if a friend of you calls you tonight and says, hi, um, Tim, a, a really good friend of mine is coming to Basingstoke tomorrow and he needs somewhere to stay. He's a really nice guy, he's a great friend, I completely trust him. He's pretty desperate, would you be able to put him up? Well, how does that change the welcome you give him on the door? I mean, it completely changes it, doesn't it? You open the door and you, you welcome into your home this person you've never met before because your friend has asked you to do that. You go out of your way to accommodate them and make them feel at home. And we welcome them because they're important to our friends. And in a sense, by welcoming them, we are, we are welcoming our friends. We're showing our love for our friends. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus loves little people, and he welcomes them. And if little people are important to Jesus, then they should be important to those who follow him. To welcome little people is to welcome Christ, and to welcome Christ is to welcome the Father. So, of course, the question is, well, who are these little people? Who are these children that, that we should be welcoming? Well, primarily, I think they are those who recognize their sickness, recognize their need of Jesus, regardless of their background, their education, 
their class, their socioeconomic grouping. The temptation for us will be to be sucked along with culture and to hang out with people who add something to us, add to our status, add to our value. People who enhance our reputation. But Jesus calls us to welcome all people like we have been welcomed. And do you know what? I love that about church family. I love that. We see little snapshots of that welcome. I love the way that people who are on the outside of society, little people, people who are looked down on, come into church and find themselves utterly loved and welcomed. The teenager bullied at school. The cleaner in the office who doesn't speak much English. The single mum, really struggling. The reformed character, the asylum seeker. Because all these people, regardless of background and wealth, are equal in the family of Christ. Equal in status. (coughs) Because they have been welcomed by him. You see, in the church family, everyone is a little person. Absolutely everyone. True greatness welcomes others. True greatness treats others as we ourselves have been treated. Thirdly, and um, very briefly, true greatness sees the good and God's grace in others, verses 38 to 41. Uh, Lots of adverts these days want to persuade us to buy their product because uh, by using their product, we can somehow get ourselves up into the elite. Um, I found this advert this week online. It's for um, uh, basically a sales uh, conference, that we call it, for, it's called The Elite. And it's uh, a place where luxury yachts, boats, jets, cars are displayed. And you have to pay to go, but... Those who go, it's a way of saying, hey, this is you. You you can be in the elites. These things mark you out. Buy this stuff and you're not like the riffraff down in Basingstoke. You're the elites. You're the inner circle. Disciples are finding Jesus' teaching hard to accept. They say, hang on a minute, surely there must be some limit to who can be in the inner circle. Look at verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. It's as if John is saying to Jesus, Jesus, yeah, yeah, we understand what you're saying, but surely this guy down the road who's just doing his own thing, not listening to us, surely he's not saying he's in the inner circle as well. Surely he's against us, isn't he? The trouble is, with John's point, is that it's motivated by pride. Because just look back to see what has just happened in chapter 9, verse 14 onwards. What Jesus has done is just healed someone with an evil spirit. And what you see in verse 28, after Jesus has gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus has just done what the disciples couldn't do. Here's a guy who makes the disciples look bad. And the disciples' issue is that this guy isn't following them. He's not listening to them. But Jesus says, doesn't he, do not stop him. 
No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. There's people in the Bible who make false claims about miracles. But this guy isn't one of them because he was acting, Jesus says, in Jesus' name. He's acting with Jesus' authority. He's relying on Jesus' grace, just like the father in that story comes to Jesus and he realises that the only way his son will be freed of this evil spirit is through belief and faith in Christ. Christ is the only source of power. Well, so this rogue disciple, if you like, has understood that. He's understood that childlike dependence on Christ is everything. The irony is that he's probably more in the inner circle than the disciples are. The disciples don't like it. They feel threatened by it. It says, well, surely if he's not following us, then, then he's, not, he's against us. And Jesus turns that on his head, doesn't he? And says, no, no, no. If someone isn't against us, he's for us. The true greatness, Jesus says, is humble enough to see the good, to see the good in others and to see God's grace at work in and through others. What does that mean for us today? What does it mean for the church? Well, uh, Vaughan Roberts in his book has this really helpful little phrase that we should be discerning but positive. The church should be discerning but positive. We must be committed to root out and fight false teaching, to defend the church against it, but we must also beware of our pride which will want to believe that our sound theology, that our Bible teaching, puts us on the elite inner circle. That somehow we begin just to look down on all those other people who haven't quite understood things as we have. We're often very quick to critique and slow to recognise God's grace and good in others. And that's what the disciples had done. The disciples' desire to justify their place in the inner circle meant they had failed to recognise God's grace and God's goodness in this other chap. So as God's people, we should be looked to be positive about brothers and sisters in our church family and in different churches. We should encourage the good wherever we find it. And we should disagree with gentleness and respect and love. Because that's what true greatness does. sees the good and God's grace in others. Let me um, ignore that. If you like the screen, thanks. Let me conclude uh, with this. Why does this all matter? Why does Jesus sit down? Why does he sit the disciples down and say, "Look, no, we, this desire for greatness, we need to do something about." Well, if you look at the next few verses, you begin to see why. Verse 41, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And it's not part of our passage this evening, but Jesus goes on to highlight the opposite of that as well. (coughs) Jesus is going to highlight the fact that how we treat others is a matter of life and death, of reward or eternal punishment. And he says that not because 
how we view and treat others is the deciding factor for where we end up eternally? No, not because of that, but because, verse 41, how we treat others reflects whether or not we belong. Whether or not we belong to Jesus. How we treat others reflects whether or not we've truly come to understand that we, before Christ, are little people. So let me finish with this. Have this evening, have you recognised before God that you are a little person in need of God's grace? If you haven't, then tonight swallow your pride. Swallow your pride and receive Jesus' welcome. If you have, if you are a Christian then verse 41, your reward is sure. It's absolutely sure. So Jesus says, if you want to be truly great, go and humbly and sacrificially serve. That's true greatness. Let's pray. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. Loving Father, tonight we thank you and praise you for the reminder that before you we are little people who've been welcomed by Christ. Father, we confess for when all those times when we are somewhere on that scale of thinking we're great or rubbish, we look to self for value. Father, we confess our pride. And as we do that, Father, we pray that we'd be reminded again of the welcome you give us. And we pray that you'd help us as a church family to recognize that before you were all little people and to love and serve and welcome each other. Please help us, Lord, to humbly, sacrificially serve you, to desire to be the very last, the servant of all. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.